0: Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. I'd ask if you would remain standing as we recite. Our passage this morning coming from John chapter five. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life I do not accept glory from people but I know you that you have no love for God within you I have come in my father's name and yet you don't accept me If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. Your accuser is Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think I had a little bit too much caffeine when I started reading that passage and I realized nobody was with me. So, apologize about that. There is something about celebrity court cases that just draw people in like moths to a flame. I remember when I was growing up, the O.J. Simpson court case was everything that people talked about and watched uh, from the white bronco to the if the glove does not fit you must acquit uh, defense and everybody was just consumed by this well recently there is another celebrity court case that has been very high profile the case between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and so a lot of attention given to that and uh, ultimately the decision that Unfolded. Why is it that we are so interested in these celebrity court cases? Well, I think there's a lot of answers to that, but I think part of it is that these people are so powerful. They have so much wealth, uh, they have so much influence, and yet there's something about them being in an average courtroom and being under the authority of a judge and a jury that is so humanizing. The fact that, that they, as much power and wealth as they have, still have to abide by the words of a judge and the decisions of a jury just like any other common human. There's something about that. And and I think that element of, of the authority and the power that they have and yet coming up to this greater power that they ultimately have to submit to is a picture of what we see in our text in John chapter 5. We've been seeing this exchange between Jesus and these uh, largely members of the Sanhedrin. We believe they're probably Pharisees because of the nature of of what they're saying and how it goes. But these individuals were, were kind of like the Supreme Court in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. They were tied to the temple And so they had an authority that was unique uh, because there was, uh, the world was very different. We talk about religions now as simply a belief system. So when I say being a Jew, you think about a specific religion that could be a person who lives anywhere. At this day and age, that was not the case. Your religion and your nationality and everything about your life was tied to where you lived and the people you're part of. And so these leaders had authority that was both political and spiritual. And so when they were taking the laws that they were overseeing of the common people those laws also were ways that they were representing political authority and power over how people operated. And so they had this massive amount of power. And here comes a man who's basically on their turf in the temple, and he is not doing the things they are wanting him to do. And he's making Claims that go against what they're saying and, and when they kind of come to enforce this law on him, he's, he's not doing it. He's, he's not following the rules the way that they are wanting him to follow them. And so there is this, this clash of authority. And what we're going to see in this section of the text is actually following a first century Jewish law court structure. And so we are going to see, in essence, a court case unfold. What was different about the first century Jewish uh, court system is that it was not simply a person that was being tried to be guilty or innocent, but the decision had to ultimately lead to the truth. And so if you brought a charge that was proven to be false, the entire system turned around. No longer were they focusing on, you know, prosecuting whoever you had accused, but now it was on you. And they were going to charge you to determine, okay, what's the truth? Who's guilty? Who's responsible? And we're going to see this play out as as Jesus represents the system. He's going to both bring witnesses to testify on his behalf, but then he's also going to turn the tables and offer judgments against the very people who are accusing him before God, the charges that they brought against him, there were two charges, and we saw them last week in verse eighteen. Uh, we read, "This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, so the first charge is what he's breaking the fourth commandment, right? He's breaking the Sabbath." But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And so this is the second charge. In their mind, this is blasphemous. And these charges come against Jesus. He is going to respond to these charges by bringing forth witnesses. Now, he says that if I testify for myself on my own behalf, then my testimony is not true. Does this mean that Jesus is a liar? And they can't trust him. No. He is saying this because in that court system. They abided by the Hebrew scriptures. And in Deuteronomy. Uh, we see that you have to have two or three witnesses. In order for a charge to be considered. And so if he was just defending himself. It would not be admissible in the court. And so he is going to bring these witnesses to support him. The first witness that Jesus brings forward is John the Baptist. Now, I remember when I was a kid, John the Baptist was one of the characters that we learned about the most because he eats bugs, right? And that is fascinating. And there's something about that. You know, he eats locusts and honey, and he wears these camel hair clothing. And, uh, you know, it's just this odd, odd figure but what we, we don't kind of learn is how credible and significant of a figure John the Baptist was in extra-biblical sources. So from a Jewish standpoint, uh, we know that John the Baptist was highly regarded. He was very famous. His ministry was hugely impactful. And so when Jesus brings John the Baptist to the stand, he is bringing a very credible witness to these Pharisees and to The system that they represent. And he's reminding them that they sent, this Sanhedrin sent a group of messengers to John the Baptist to ask him about Jesus. We read this in John chapter 1. John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. This is verses 32 through 34, by the way. And he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So here's his, his testimony. I have seen and testified that this is who? So that's his testimony, that Jesus is the Son of God. And that testimony, Jesus is bringing into this court case. Uh, the second witness is odd to us because it's not a person, but it is Jesus' own works, he says that the, the works that he does testify for him. Well, what works? Well, do you remember, uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, the situation that started all of this mess? Jesus healed a man on what day? On the Sabbath. And that was a big deal because the guy was carrying his mat, and that was against the observance of the, the Sabbath at that time. And so that was a, an issue. But the fact that the man, after 38 years, was up and walking when he had been paralyzed should have been a testimony to the fact that Jesus was doing things only God could do. That, that work itself and all of the other miracles that Jesus has been doing should have testified to his identity and to his authority. Right, that, that he is credible, that he has this authority to both teach about the kingdom of God and to bring the kingdom of God. And so his own works are a testimony. Uh, third, we see the third witness is the Father. And so Jesus says, the Father testifies about me. And, and he goes on in verse 37 to say, the Father who sent me, has himself testified about me. And this is a shot. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. So what is Jesus saying? And who are the people who he's saying it to? Do these people claim to know God? Absolutely. Do they speak with the authority of god they do right and so the very authority that they claim because of their knowledge of god and their you know ability to speak on his behalf jesus is is completely going against that saying you don't truly know god now This is not saying that the Hebrew scriptures and all that had come before this didn't represent God. We we know this. We we see the authority that's there. And and that is very much not what Jesus is is doing. But there is a way in which, uh, and Hebrews talks about this. That, that Jesus, so in, in previous times and in various ways, God has spoken through, you know, the prophets. But now in this final expression, he's, he's speaking to you by the son. God is fully revealing himself and revealing his heart and revealing his purposes and revealing his kingdom in the person of Jesus. And so in John 1.18, we read these words. No one has ever seen God The one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side, he has revealed him. So there is this revelation in the person of Jesus of the father. And so because of that, when they reject him, Jesus says, you don't have his word residing in you, the word of the father, the word of God, because you don't believe the one who he sent. And and so this This testimony of the Father, the fact that Jesus knows the Father is coming to reveal the Father, is is really an accusation. It's really a judgment that they don't know him because they don't recognize Jesus as being who the Father has sent. Uh, The fourth and final witness that Jesus brings forward are the scriptures, Uh, the scriptures. And so we pick this up in verse 39, we Read, you pour, love that word, over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. You pour over the scriptures. So my son Judson is in here, he's 10 and I have told him often, so Judson fortunately got a lot of genetic material from his mother and that's a good thing and, and her brain and intelligence is a really good thing, as little of me as possible. Uh, but he, so he has, you know, good memory, and we work on verses. But I will remind him every once in a while that if he were a Jewish boy in the first century, by the time he, he turned 12, he would have the first five books of the te- Old Testament memorized completely. <laughs> Think about that. Right? An average 12-year-old got the Torah, you know, so... Then you're talking about these Pharisees are the highest, most educated, most intelligent people. Not only do they know the whole Hebrew scriptures, the whole Old Testament, they know the rabbinical teachings on the scriptures and can dial it. So think about that. Think about how brilliant they were and how well they knew the scriptures. Now, is that a bad thing? Absolutely not, right? But. I think the, the point of what Jesus is, is getting at here, to me, makes sense with an illustration of a treasure map. So my kids, like most of the, the television I watch at this point is my kids' decisions. And so there are a lot of shows on treasure maps, right? And pirates and islands and all that goes into that. And so when you have a treasure map, what's the point of that? Right? To follow it and to find the treasure. In essence, what you could say, Jesus is saying, is you have this treasure map and you have memorized it, you have studied it, you have copied it, you have discussions about it, but you have not followed it. (laughs) You have not found the treasure and that was the point, right? That was the point of this treasure map that that is given in the scriptures is to reveal the truth about God, but about the Messiah who he was going to send and the, the purposes uh, and the kingdom of God, all that's represented there. And and so this is, this is the problem, right? They have the map, but they missed the point, and so they're lost, right? And so he goes on. He says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope, for if you believed Moses you would believe me because he wrote about me. Now, obviously the hero in this Jewish context was Moses and the way that the the scriptures had such authority over over their lives and their understanding of God and, and yet what Jesus is saying is that Moses wrote about who? Him, Right? All of these prophecies and everything that foretold these types and all that, that pointed to the Messiah. But, but even behind all of that, the way that God was working, it was, it was pointing to Jesus. And so when Moses, when you're standing in judgment, Moses is going to go, you missed the point. <laughs> right? Right? You didn't see that you know, the, 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 the treasure was there. The, the, the very one who was revealing God, who was bringing his kingdom, was right in front of you. And so we, we think about that as we think about our scriptures, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, and that, that there is this point and this purpose that leads us to Jesus. Now, why was, was it not clear? So when we read these passages of scripture, we see the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that they represent. And it is so clear, especially in John, he is moving through the Old Testament. He is showing how these Old Testament passages pointed to the person of Jesus. So, was it not clear, if they were honest, that Jesus was tied with and and, and an expression of these scriptures? If they were honest with themselves, and they saw the things that he was doing, they listened to what he was teaching... Was it not clear that Jesus really was this promised Messiah? I think we would have to say, I mean, obviously we're where we are right now, and so we have the perspective we have, but I think we have to say, what was it that kept them from seeing the truth about Jesus? Well, Jesus, I believe, would simply state it as Pride. I think what kept them from seeing the truth was pride. And I will be honest, same is true for me. And my guess is the same is true for you. What often keeps us from seeing the truth that other people can see that in hindsight seems obvious? Well, so often it is our pride that blinds us. And Jesus is going to point this out in verse 39. He says, I don't accept glory from people, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? So what is motivating them? And we've seen this. We've seen the way that they reacted when, when they were to be shepherds of the sheep and when one of the sheep that has been injured and bound up was healed and freed and cared for, their heart showed that they, they didn't love the sheep, right? They loved the power and the authority that the law gave them over that sheep. And so their, their lack of love was very much at the core of what Jesus is addressing. They don't, they don't display love for the sheep. They are at one level using the sheep for their own power and control, and yet the other element they, that Jesus is saying is they don't, lo- they don't have love for who? For God. He says love for God is not what is motivating you. So love is not motivating you. Now what Jesus is going to teach about the law is that the entire law, what God's purpose was for his law over his people was what? Love. If you love God and you love others, this whole thing takes care of itself. And so with their enforcement of the law, they are at their core motive, not reflecting the, the heart of the law, the purpose of the law, the love that is meant to motivate all that they are, all that they are doing as the people of God. And, and this is where we see that love is the opposite of pride. Right? So pride is the opposite of love because if I am driven by pride, then I will not genuinely love people, but I will want to use people for my purposes. Pride will cause me to see folks around me as kind of pawns, right? To be utilized in one way or another because it all goes back to my purposes being done. And so love very much prevents. Our pride very much prevents love. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says that pride leads to every other vice, every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Right? The antithesis of God and his calling on our life is, is pride. And that, that should be significant, right? That, that's, that's a massive problem. And what pride does is it leads me to seek my will rather than surrender my will. Pride leads me to seek my will, my purposes, rather than surrendering my will. And and this is very much the rub. So Jesus says, they don't seek the glory that comes from who? He's saying to this group of people, to these religious leaders, you don't seek the glory that comes from God, you seek the glory from who? Other people. Let me ask you, are you ever motivated by the approval of other people? Right? I am. <laughs> I certainly am. And this is a problem. Because when you, when you think through how someone could justify doing terrible things to other human beings, to other people in the name of God, right? And so we've talked about this. I will keep it at a high level, but issues of abuse present in the church, present in Christian leadership. How is it possible to do terrible things to other people in the name of God, bearing the name of God? It's when self-glory is actually what's driving you, and that is incredibly deceptive. Because it is easy to do things to serve God and to accomplish the purposes of God, but actually be driven by your own ego and your own glory. And I will acknowledge this. That I am putting myself first and foremost right here. I struggle with this because I can want you all to approve of me. And there can be times when I walk off the stage after a sermon and what I'm thinking is, oh man, I, I didn't do a good job and they're not going to be approved Proving. And, and that is problematic because it's showing I'm doing what Jesus is addressing these Pharisees for. I'm seeking the glory that comes from people. I'm allowing my ego to be what drives me. And the way of Jesus. So in many ways, what Jesus is coming to do. So the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is, is bringing about the way of the kingdom of God and he is teaching us, he's, he's bringing the kingdom of God, and he's going to do this through his life, death, and resurrection, but he's also teaching us how to live in the kingdom of God. So we we are following Jesus to learn how to live under his rule, under his authority, in the kingdom of God. And the way that you do that, the first step to entering the kingdom of God or learning from Jesus how to live life in the kingdom of God is surrendering your will. That's the first step. Die to yourself. Take up your cross every day and follow me. So, surrender of your will rather than seeking of your will. That's how you live life in the kingdom of God. And you have to constantly be humble to realize you are not God. You weren't God yesterday. You're not God today. You're not going to be God tomorrow, right? And, and that is good, right? That's good. It's good for you. It's good for the people around you. But we have to, the only way we get to that place is humility, right? Is, is acknowledging what we can't do, that we're not God. And, and Jesus is going to, to teach this. He's going to teach the way that we, we live with this ongoing surrender. And, and that it's a good thing for us, right? And so here's what I understand. What Jesus is doing is not simply a expression of guilt to the Pharisees, but an invitation. Uh, it's, he, 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 his purposes are revealed uh, in verse 40. He says, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have what? So what does Jesus want for these Pharisees? He wants them to have a life. What does he want for you? Life, right? That's his heart. He's not just trying to one-up these guys and show that he's smarter and they're dumber. That's not the the, the point. He's saying, I wish that you would see the truth so that you could come to me. Instead of pouring yourself into these scriptures and and letting your ego keep, keep you under the the enslavement that you're and, and find life, right? John 10, 10, Jesus says, and I've come that you might have life and life abundant. That's, that's Jesus purpose, right? He's the good shepherd. And so when he calls us to acknowledge that we are not God, that we're not him, that we, we need to surrender to him, right? He's doing it for our good, That's the purpose, right? That's his heart in this. And so here's how this plays out because there are so many things that we can do that are ego driven, that are, that are focused on ourselves. And it starts with, again, like I said, entrance into the kingdom because we can feel the need to earn for God's forgiveness, right? To, to earn his acceptance and earn our way into heaven and all of these things. And, and very much that is, that is at play here. And he's saying, no, you just have to trust me. You have to die to yourself, die to your attempts, right? To, to earn God's approval and earn, and, and trust in me and surrender to me, right? Let go of all of these efforts and, and trust it. And, and that's, that's essential to trust in my life, lived in your place. My death on the cross to pay for your sins and to purchase your forgiveness. My resurrection from the dead to provide you with eternal life with God. Like that's, that's it. But it continues. It continues to be this expression of, of letting go of trying to control our lives and outcomes and the people around us. And... And surrendering to him, right? And, 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 and living in that trust of, of of allowing him to provide for us and be our shepherd and lead us and, and guide us. And, and that is, it's a daily process, right? And, and so this is where I want us to see the way of Jesus. So if we're learning from Jesus how to live in the kingdom of God, which is what I want to do as a church... The way, the first way, the way of Jesus, right? Because I said a couple weeks ago, the early church was not called believers in the creed, not that belief is, belief is good, we need to know what we believe, but they were called followers of the way. There's a way that is leading to abundant life that Jesus desires for us to learn and to follow. And the way of Jesus, first and foremost, is the way of surrender. It's the way of surrender, right? And And maybe you're here today and you've never done that. You've never truly surrendered your life and your will and your sin and your guilt and your future to God through Jesus. And that's the first step, right? That's, if you've never done that, I would, I, would, I would ask you to do that. I'll be in the prayer room in just a moment when we respond. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe the step, the step of, of obedience and, and expression of that surrender through baptism, maybe that's the step you need to take. I would encourage that, but... Wherever you are We are constantly brought to this point Of, of needing to surrender And so that's what I would, I would ask what, what is it maybe right now where, where ego Kind of like the Pharisees Ego The glory of others Self glory Is driving you you're, you're, you're really trusting in yourself And, and because of that You're, you're experiencing anxiety, you're experiencing anger, you're, you're falling into these, these patterns of sin and the call in whatever that is, is, is surrender right, our mission statement as a church is true freedom through full surrender to Christ and so what is it now that maybe you've, you've surrendered in the past but it's an area of your life, it's something in specific that you've, you've taken back And you need to to surrender it to God. What do we need to let go of today? And remember that Jesus' purpose in this is for our good. So when we surrender control of our life over to him, it is what's best for us. And it's what brings glory to him. All right, you just to bow your heads for just a moment. Once again, I'll be uh, in the prayer room As we respond, if there's anything you want to pray for, you want to talk about, I invite you to do that. Just take a moment there in your seats to ask God, what what do I need to surrender? Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.